Chapter 4 of The Autobiography of a Thief. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Autobiography of a Thief by Hutchins Hapgood. Chapter 4 When the Graft Was Good. I stayed in the House of Refuge until I was 18, and when released, went through a short period of reform. I lasted, I think, nearly three weeks, and then started into graft again, harder than ever. The old itch for excitement, for theaters, balls, and gambling, made reform impossible. I had already formed strong habits and desires which could not be satisfied in my environment without stealing. I was rapidly becoming a confirmed criminal. I began to do housework, which was mainly sneak work uptown. We would catch a basement open in the daytime and rummage for silverware, money, or jewels. There's only a step from this to the business of the genuine burglar, who operates in the nighttime, and whose occupation is far more dangerous than that of the sneak thief. However, at this intermediate kind of graft, our swag for 18 months was considerable. One of our methods was to take servant girls to balls and picnics, and to get them to tip us off to where the goods were and the best way to get them. Sometimes they were guilty, more often merely suckers. During the next three years, at the expiration of which I made my first trip to Sing Sing, I stole a great deal of money and lived very high. I contracted more bad habits, practically ceased to see my family at all, lived in a furnished room, and hung out in the evening at some dance hall such as Billy McGlory's Old Armory, George Doe's, or Thee Allen's. Sheenie Annie was my sweetheart at this period, and after we had made a good touch, what times we would have at Coney Island or at Billy McGlory's. Saturday nights in the summertime, a mob of three or four of us, grafters and girls, would go to the island and stop at a hotel run by an ex-gun. At two or three o'clock in the morning we'd all leave the hotel, with nothing on but a quilt, and go in swimming together. Sheenie Annie, Blonde Mamie, and Big Lena often went with us. At other times we took respectable shop girls, or even women who belonged to a still lower class. What boy with an ounce of thick blood in his body could refuse to go with a girl to the island? And Billy McGlory's, what times we had there on dear old Saturday nights. At this place, which contained a bar room, dance room, pool room, and a piano, congregated downtown guns, housemen, and thieves of both sexes. No ragtime was danced in those days, but early in the morning we had plenty of the can-can. The riots that took place there would put to shame anything that goes on now. Footnote. Summer of 1902. I never knew the town so tight shut as it is at present. It's far better from a moral point of view than it has ever been before, at least in my recollection. Thee Allen's was in those days a grade more decent than McGlory's, for at Thee's nobody who did not wear a collar and coat was admitted. I remember a pal of mine who met a society lady on a slumming expedition with a reporter. It was at McGlory's. The lady looked upon the grafter she had met as a novelty. The grafter looked upon the lady in the same way, but consented to write her an article on the Bowery. He sent her the following composition, which he showed to me first, and allowed me to copy it. I always did like freaks. I won't put in the bad grammar and spelling, but the rest is, quote, while strolling after the midnight hour along the lane in that historic thoroughfare sometimes called the Bowery, I dropped into a concert hall. At a glance I saw men who worked hard during the week and needed a little recreation. Near them were their sisters, that is, if we all belonged to the same human family, who had fallen by the wayside. 
A man was trying to play a popular song on a squeaky piano while another gent tried to sing the first part of the song, when the whole place joined in the chorus with a zest. I think the song was most appropriate. It was a ditty of the slums entitled Dear Old Saturday Night. End quote. When I was about 19, I took another and important step in the world of graft. One night I met a couple of swell grafters, one of whom is at the present time a Pinkerton detective. They took me to the Haymarket, where I met a crowd of guns who were making barrels of money. Two of them, Dutch Lonzo and Charlie Allen, became my friends and introduced me to Mr. R., who has often kept me out of prison. He was a go-between, a lawyer, and well known to all good crooks. If we fell, we had to notify him, and he would set the underground wires working, with the result that our fall money would need replenishing badly, but that we'd escape the stir. That I was not convicted again for three years was entirely due to my fall money and to the cleverness of Mr. R. Besides these expenses, which I considered legitimate, I used to get shaken down regularly by the police and detectives. The following is a typical case. I was standing one day on the corner of Grand Street and the Bowery when a copper who knew me came up and said, There's a lot of knocking, complaining, going on about the Grand Street cars being torn open. The old man, the chief, won't stand for it much longer. It wasn't me, I said. Well, it was one of the gang, he replied, and I'll have to make an arrest soon or take someone to headquarters for his mug. That is, to have his picture taken for the rogues gallery. I knew what that meant, and so I gave him a $20 bill. But I was young, and often objected to these exorbitant demands. More than anybody else, a thief hates to be touched, for he despises the sucker on whom he lives. And we were certainly touched with great regularity by the coppers. Still, we really had nothing to complain of in those days, for we made plenty of money and had a good time. We even used to buy our collars, cuffs, and gloves cheap from grafters who made it their business to steal those articles. They were cheap guns, pipe fiends, petty larceny thieves, and shoplifters, but they helped to make our path smoother. After I met the Haymarket grafter, I used to jump out to neighboring cities on very profitable business. A good graft was to work the fairs at Danbury, Waverly, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh, and the football games at Princeton. I always traveled with three or four others, and went for gatherings where we knew we would find roofers, or country gentlemen. On my very first jump out, I got a fall, but the copper was open to reason. Dutch Lonzo and Charlie Allen, splendid pickpockets. I always went with good thieves, for I had become a first-class dip and had a good personal appearance were working with me in Newark, where Vice President Hendricks was to speak. I picked a watch in the crowd and was nailed. But Dutch Lonzo, who had the gift of gab better than any man I ever met, took the copper into a saloon. We all had a drink, and for $25 I escaped even the station house. Unfortunately, however, I was compelled to return the watch, for the copper had to square the sucker. Then the copper said to Dutch Lonzo, whom he knew, Go back and graft if you want, but be sure to look me up. In an hour or two, we got enough touches to do us for two weeks. Senator Wetcoin was at this speech with about 200 Tammany Braves, and we picked so many pockets that a newspaper the next day said there must have been at least 199 pickpockets in the Tammany delegation. We fell quite often on these trips, but we were always willing to help the coppers pay for their lower flats. I sometimes objected because of their exorbitant demands, but I was still young. 
I knew that longshoremen did harder work for less pay than the coppers, and I thought, therefore, that the latter were too eager to make money on a sure thing graft, and I always hated a sure thing graft. But didn't we strike it rich in Connecticut? Whether the people of that state suffer from partial paralysis or not, I don't know, but certainly if all states were as easy as Connecticut, the guns would set up as Vanderbilt's. I never even got a tumble in Connecticut. I ripped up the fares in every direction and took every chance. The inhabitants were so easy that we treated them with contempt. After a long trip in Connecticut, I nearly fell on my return. I was that raw. We were breech-getting, picking men's pockets, in the Brooklyn cars. I was stalling in front, Lonzo was behind, and Charlie was the pick. Lonzo telephoned to me by gestures that Charlie had got hold of the leather, but it wouldn't come. I was hanging on a strap and, pretending to slip, brought my hand down heavily on the sucker's hat, which went over his ears. The leather came, was slipped to me. Lonzo apologized for spoiling the hat and offered the sucker a five-dollar bill, which he politely refused. Now that was rough work, and we would not have done it had we not been traveling so long among the rubes in Connecticut. We could have made our gets all right, but we were so confident and delayed so long that the sucker blew before we left the car, and Lonzo and Charlie were nailed, and the next morning arraigned. In the meantime, however, we had started the wires working, and notified Mr. R. and Lonzo's wife to fix things in Brooklyn. The reliable attorney got a bondsman, and two friends of his fixed the cops, who made no complaint. Lonzo's wife, an Irish woman and a handsome grafter, had just finished a five-year bit in London. It cost us $600 to fix that case, and there were only $250 in the leather. That made Lonzo's wife exceedingly angry. Good Lord, she said. There's panthers for you in New York. There's blokes that shakes you down too heavy. I'd want an unlimited check on the Bank of England if you ever fell again. A little philosophy on the same subject was given me one day by an English mall, who had fallen upstate and had to give up heavily. I've been in a good many cities and amlets in this country, said she. But, cat, blind me if I ever want to fall in an amlet in this blooming state again. The New York police are at least a little sensible at times, but when these Rufuses up the state get a Yorker or a wise guy, they'll strip him down to his socks. One of these voracious country coppers who sing sweet hymns in jail is a more successful gun than them that hit the rocky path and take brash to get the long green. It's only the grafter is supposed to protect the people who makes a success of it. The hypocritical mouthings of these people just suit the size of their Bibles. Lonzo and I, and Patsy, a grafter I had picked up about this time, made several fat trips to Philadelphia. At first we were leery of the department stores, there have been so many hollers, and worked the rattlers, cars, only. We were told by some local guns that we could not last 24 hours in Philadelphia without protection, but that was not our experience. We went easy for a time, but the chances were too good, and we began voraciously to tear open the department stores, the churches, and the theaters. And without a fall. Whenever anybody mentioned the fly cops, detectives, of Philadelphia, it reminded us of the inhabitants of Connecticut. They were not dead. Such a word is sacred. Their proper place was not on the police force, but on the shelf in a Dutchman's grocery store labeled the Can Article. Philadelphia was always my town, but I never stayed very long, partly because I did not want to become known in such a fat place, and partly because I could not bear to be away from New York very long. For although there is better graft in other cities, there is no such place to live in as Manhattan. 
I had no fear of being known in Philadelphia to the police, but to local guns who would become jealous of our grafting and tip us off. On one of my trips to the city of brotherly love, I had a poetical experience. The graft had been good, and one Sunday morning I left Dan and Patsy asleep and went for a walk in the country, intending for a change to observe the day of rest. I walked for several hours through a beautiful, quiet country, and about ten o'clock passed the country church. They were singing inside, and for some reason, probably because I had had a good walk in the country, the music affected me strangely. I entered and saw a blind evangelist and his sister. I bowed my head, and my whole past life came over me. Although everything had been coming my way, I felt uneasy and thought of home for the first time in many weeks. I went back to the hotel in Philadelphia feeling very gloomy and shut myself up in my room. I took up my pen and began a letter to a Tommy, girl, in New York. But I could not forget the country church, and instead of writing to the little Tommy, I wrote the following jingles. When a child by my mother's knee, I would watch, watch, watch by the deep blue sea, and the moonbeams played merrily on our home beside the sea. Chorus. The evening star shines brightly above our home beside the sea, and the moonbeams danced beamingly on our home beside the sea. But now I am old, infirm and gray, I shall never see those happy days. I would give my life, all my wealth and fame, to hear my mother gently call my name. Towards evening, Patsy and Dan returned from a good day's work. Patsy noticed I was quiet and unusually gloomy, and asked, What's the matter? Didn't you get anything? No, I replied, I'm going back to New York. Where have you been? asked Dan. To church, I replied. In the city, he asked. No, I replied, in the country. I cautioned you, said Dan, against taking such chances. There's no dough in those country churches. If you want to try alone ones on a Sunday, take in some swell church in the city. The following Sunday I went to a fashionable church and got a few leathers, and afterwards went to all the swell churches in the city. I touched them, but they could not touch me. I heard all the ministers in Philadelphia, but they could not move me the way that country evangelist did. They were all artificial in comparison. Shortly after my poetical experience in Philadelphia, I made a trip up New York State with Patsy, Dan, and Joe, and grafted in a dozen towns. One day when we were on the cars going from Albany to Amsterdam, we saw a fat, sleepy-looking Dutchman, and I nicked him for a clock as he was passing along the aisle to the end of the car. It took the Dutchman about ten minutes after he had returned to his seat to blow that his super was gone and his chain hanging down. A look of stupid surprise spread over his innocent countenance. He looked all around, picked up the end of his chain, saw it was twisted, put his hand in his vest pocket, and then looked again at the end of the chain, tried his pocket again, and then went through all of his pockets and repeated each of these actions a dozen times. The passengers all got next and began to grin. Get on to the hiker, countryman, said Patsy to Joe, and they both laughed. I told the Dutchman that the clock must have fallen down the leg of his underwear, whereupon the Reuben retired to investigate, searched himself thoroughly, and returned only to go through the same motions, and then retired to investigate once more. It was as good as a comedy. But it was well there were no country coppers on that train. They would not have cared a rap about the Dutchman's loss of his property, but we four probably should have been compelled to divide with them. 
Grafters are a superstitious lot. Before we reached Buffalo, a feeling came over me that I had better not work in that town. So Joe, Dan, and an English grafter we had picked up named Scotty stopped at Buffalo, and Patsy and I went on. Sure enough, in a couple of days, Joe wired me that Scotty had fallen for a breech kick and was held for trial. I wired to Mr. R., who got into communication with Mr. J., a Canadian Jew living in Buffalo, who set the wires going. The sucker proved a very hard man to square, but a politician who was a friend of Mr. J. showed him the errors of his way, and before very long Scotty returned to New York. An English mall buzzer, a girl, got hold of him and took him back to London. It was just as well, for it was time for our bunch to break up. We were getting too well known, and falls were coming too frequent. So we had a general split. Joe went to Washington, Patsy down east, Scotty to stir in London, and I stayed in Manhattan, where I shortly afterwards met Big Jack and other burglars and started in on that dangerous graft. But before I tell about my work in that line, I'll narrate the story of Mamie and Johnny, a famous cracksman, whom I met at this time. It's a true love story of the underworld. Johnny and Mamie, who, by the way, is not the same as blonde Mamie, are still living together in New York City after many trials and tribulations, one of the greatest of which was Mamie's enforced relation with a New York detective. But I won't anticipate on the story, which follows in the next chapter. End of chapter 4